Hey, I'm Mike Joseph, and thank you for listening to Detoxicity, a show by men, about men, but for everyone. I hope you enjoy the content of this podcast, and I want to let you know about a few things you can do to support us and our mission to challenge traditional notions of masculinity and create a more communicative, positive, and loving environment for all. You can subscribe to Detoxicity on any podcast platform that you use to listen. We are available just about everywhere. Also, don't hesitate to rate and comment as these help us move up in the podcast rankings. I'm on social media, or at least I'm on Twitter, Instagram, and TikTok as Detox Pod Guy. Feel free to drop me a follow. Now I have a Patreon page, yay! And uh, Patreon gives you the opportunity to get cool merch and exclusive episodes of this podcast in exchange for subscribing. Go to patreon.com slash detoxicitypod to find out more. Uh, finally, I'd love to hear from you. Uh, whether you found an episode of the podcast particularly enjoyable or enlightening, or you know someone who'd be a great guest, or you'd like to offer constructive criticism, or if you yourself would like to be on the podcast, hit me up. Reach out to me at one of the aforementioned social media channels, or if you're old school like I am, drop me an email, detoxpod at gmail.com. Thank you for listening, and take care. So we've done 130-something of these shows over the past three years, and we have only very rarely repeated guests. So you might be wondering, Mike, how do you find guests for your show? And there are a few different ways. Uh, I obviously reach out to my friend circle. I am from really interested in somebody. I shoot an email to their business uh, address or hit them up on Instagram or Twitter. Sometimes the person you want to interview is sitting a few desks away from you at work. And that is the case with uh, this episode's guest, Sean McNamara. Uh, We met at my day job uh, a few years back, and uh, he is not working there anymore. He's not even living in New York City anymore. Uh, We also were in a basketball league together, but that is irrelevant to this particular conversation uh, because Sean is, as many of my guests are, also a musician. And Sean has a lot to share uh, about himself over the course of this particular interview. Um, We talk about anxiety and being diagnosed with it and what he does with it and discovering therapy. Uh, We talk about culture shock and change. Sean uh, grew up in the Connecticut area and then decided to go to school in New Orleans, which as one would imagine is a hell of a lot different than suburban Connecticut. And also we talk a lot about loss and grief. Uh, Sean lost his mom a few years ago and is still kind of dealing with aftershocks from that. Grief for some people is a lengthy process. Anyway, I hope you enjoy this interview. Sean was really good to talk to. And uh, hey, here's Sean. My name is Sean McNamara. I am currently based out of Washington, D.C. I've been based out of a few different places. I have an office job, but I'll introduce myself as a singer-songwriter because that is still the goal and and you are trying to figure out where to start here where'd you grow up i grew up in connecticut milford you grew up in connecticut see i I still struggle sometimes with asking questions that i already know the answers to (laughs) yeah (laughs) but it makes for a better interview um when i do things like that what was the intent or what was the impetus for you to become a a singer songwriter it's honestly the only thing that ever really made sense to me. I've been working in music and music licensing on the business side for almost a decade now. And I always feel a little like I'm playing pretend because I, I it sounds so cliched and so like a star is born sounding, but I am at my most comfortable when I'm behind my guitar. I'm in front of a mic, even if it's in front of three people at an open mic. It's the only thing that's ever clicked. And I knew that really early. I think about 
two moments that really were clarifying for me was one when I got the first Beatles greatest hits, that red one, the 1962 to 1966 on cassette. Very familiar. I would sit on the floor of my bedroom as a kid with my cassette player for just hours, pouring over the pictures, pouring over the, the credits, flipping it tape back over and over and over. And if that doesn't turn you into a pop music fan for life, I don't know what will. I just knew that I loved music and I wanted to do something with music and I wanted to find out how it happened. And then the same summer that I picked up the guitar for the first time, John Mayer's Room for Squares came out. And his hometown of Bridgeport is, if I could say I have a second hometown, it's Bridgeport because my parents worked there. I spent as much of my raising in Bridgeport as I did Milford. And when somebody from two towns over from me is doing the thing you didn't know could be done, it felt like the skeleton key. It was just like, oh, it's possible. You don't have to be from New York. You don't have to be from LA. You can be from where I'm from and do it. And that sealed my fate forever. Have you ever wanted to do anything that was not related to music? I actually have asked this of a previous guest because he's also saying that it was always in his blood to be a musician, like it was a calling for him. And I'm like, you never wanted to be like a fireman or a, I don't know. Why am I struggling to think of jobs? It is early in the morning. <laughs> That's right. right. We're both sipping on the coffee. We'll get through or a superhero or a, yeah. I don't know, a lawyer. Genuinely, no, not one bit. So my dad at the time was an accountant. Now he works in HR. So that wasn't like particularly thrilling rare route as a kid. And then my mom was a nurse for 30 plus years, but she also watched a lot of ER. And so I'd watch that show and be like, ah, that's terrifying. That's what you do. I don't want to do that. No, thank you. Yeah. Even as a kid, before I started learning how to play music or picking up any instrument, I only ever wanted to write. I wrote poetry as a kid. I wrote little poems. One of my very fun facts is I I technically am a published poet. I got into some little kid's book of poetry, like the Young Americans Poetry Collection a few times when I was in grade school. Not that that is something I really did much longer than that, but I always just wanted to create. And I didn't know how for a long time to put the two together. Anyway, I loved my Beatles tapes, like nothing else in life, and making stuff and doing stuff with words. And then, yeah, finally, it just kind of clicked, but there was nothing else that ever spoke to me in any way. What does music do for you? What internally does it do for you? It's the lifeblood. It's a comfort when I'm sad. It's a celebratory thing when I'm feeling joyful. It's a constant companion, and it's a constant positive addition to my life. When I'm feeling down, nothing in the world sounds better than Elvis Costello's Painted from Memory album with Burt Bacharach. Or when I'm grilling or I'm out in the summertime and I'm really high on a New York Mets win, all I want to do is listen to like the Wild Chapatula's album and just party in my living room. It's the first thing that I reach for every day, my beloved wife. <laughs> I could drop that there. in there. Of course. It feels so silly to say, but it's everything. It's the root of everything for me. I don't think it's silly to say one thing that, and this might be particular to people like us. Mm -hmm. One thing that always makes me kind of raise my eyebrow is when, like, I'll give you some context here. I dated somebody once yeah. and they were like, yeah, I don't like music. Mm -hmm. And I was like, huh? Right. Like, how is that even possible? That's like right. saying I don't like breathing. Right. Right. 
Right. <laughs> it's a very physical thing to me. I was trying to work on a song the other day and something about it wasn't feeling right. I was trying to think through why, and I couldn't put words in it, but I knew I felt it physically. And it's the same. I, I started to think about this a lot recently in the same way that a good song you want to tap your foot to, you want to move to, there's something very physical and spiritually existentially gets you feeling right, kind of locks you into the larger world around you. And that's how I was explaining to myself how this song wasn't feeling right to me because I was thinking, I just, it, into my bones, I don't know why, but it doesn't feel right. And sometimes it's beyond words to me. I don't know how else to say what else it means to me because it is so instinctual. It is so every part of my being, my physical being, my spiritual being, it just keeps the gears turning. You mentioned briefly a couple of minutes ago, your wife and you are a newlywed. So congratulations. Thank that. you very much. Thank uh, you. What is it like to be a newlywed? What is it like to put a ring on it? I'm going to do the dance here. We keep joking to each other because we're getting that question a lot. Oh, how does it feel to be married? And we say, just like before we were married. And which I hopefully speaks to how good and solid our relationship has been this whole time. But yeah, we had a wonderful celebration with friends and we came home and now it's okay. It's still forever like we knew it was a year ago. And it's a, just a beautiful continuation of this really special thing that we have started to build over the almost six years we've been together. What solidified that for you? Because again, I not mm -hmm. to make this about myself, I I certainly don't enter any kind of relationship, whether friendship or romantic relationship, with the idea that it's going to be temporary. Sure. I think every relationship I enter is going to be forever. But mm -hmm. what was it that in your mind solidified like okay this is it yeah it's hard to pinpoint one particular time or one particular moment that i was like this is my forever person but i think even early on it was maybe around our our fourth date so our early dates she lived in new york at the time i still lived in connecticut and i would commute in every day to my first job in the city so there were a lot of times where i would come in for our dates and then i would be on the last train out at 1.30 in the morning to go back home oh, to then get on the 7 a.m. train back into work Good all the time. God, man. I was devoted early. <laughs> but even that early, we would go to a lot of outdoor movies. That was our thing throughout our time in New York, but especially early on for our first dates. I think it was around the fourth date where I was just like, this is it. This is the thing I've been looking for. I don't know a specific moment that night it clicked or whatever, but when I try to think about what was the moment when I knew, I think it was at the Brooklyn Bridge, we were watching Office Space. It wasn't any kind of mind-blowingly romantic kind of thing. We were hanging out. We were watching a movie, and I just felt an immediate deep comfort in a way. I don't know how to otherwise explain it. It just felt like, okay, I've arrived at the place I should be. And here's the person I should be with. That is beautiful. Thank you. Thank you. I'm proud of that myself. I'm going to save that for her later. <laughs> <laughs> I'm going to play the back. See what I said about you? That's right. Take a listen <laughs> to this episode. You get a lot of shout outs. Okay. So let's go back a little bit. Sure. Because I know Sean as a fully formed adult yeah. bearded iteration. That's right. Yeah. For the most part. There have been phases. But I've known you for the last three or four years. Yeah. What was young Sean like? Younger, because younger you're still Sean. Young. A total mess. 
just a total emotional, anxious mess who didn't really know who he was. I don't want to say I super greatly struggled because really up until my mom passed away when I was 23, everything was pretty solidified. I had a really great raising, no issues all through high school, really. But I went to school in New Orleans, this amazing town, and I had no friends. And I didn't really go out to try to connect with people in many ways. If I was going to a show, I went by myself. If I was going to the movies, I went by myself. Not because people were rejecting me, but because I didn't know how to connect with the outside world for my very first time on my own. And looking back at it now, I think it just took me a very long time to be not even just sure of myself, but know who I was. That's always sort of a work in progress, isn't it? But I think looking back on it, I was a way more insular and anxious person than I thought I was. Life was good, but I am very happy to be in my 30s because I think up until my 30s, there's a lot to work through. There's a lot. Right. And you lived in Connecticut from the time you were born up until you graduated or started college. Yeah. I basically never left the Milford, Stratford, Bridgeport area of Connecticut. Yeah. So there was probably never a huge impetus to go out of your circle and meet new people and yeah. do different things. Everything was kind of built in for your your community wasn't oh, yeah. there. So actually, what was the motive for you to go to school in New Orleans? It really came from my band teacher in high school. He had gone to Loyola and this was shortly after Katrina. So my parents were not immediately thrilled at the idea. Understandably so. I'm in the middle of applying for this school and they're rebuilding town and they're seeing all the news about it. But my band teacher, who I've lost touch with, and I get sad about it when I think about it too much, he was like, you have to go to New Orleans. All these other kids in class, he would help them apply to Berkeley or try to get them into the Hart School because we were in Connecticut, this wonderful conservatory. But when I would ask him, he would go apply for Loyola New Orleans. That's where you should go. So I did the application. I sent it in. Where else should I apply? And I'll never forget it. His response was, I told you where you should apply. That's the place for you. I'm telling hmm. you. And he was dead on. I don't know what it was about me because really in the grand scheme of things, he knew me for like a year and a half, just my junior and senior year. He didn't know me all that well, but I don't know. He picked up something enough in me to say, that's the place for you. And he was dead on. So first of all, suburban Connecticut and New Orleans are two very, 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 very different places. Very distinct <laughs> from one so another. I, I would imagine the culture shock was pretty incredible. Oh, yeah. It was every day, even throughout my four years there, was really an eye-opening experience. Just for starters, there's that, that I think everybody has where they go, oh, my God, you can drink in the streets? But even once I got past that surface level culture shock, you're right. It's just such a different way of life. It's such a different culture that, yeah, I don't know if you could pick two places on the U.S. map that are more distinct from one another. And I am thankful every day that I I went there for that instead of going to, I also did apply for Berkeley, got laughed out of my audition because I can't read music at all. So I went through all my prepared pieces. I know we're tangentially here, but no. uh, my, and then they threw four bars of sheet music in front of me. And they're just like, okay, take five minutes to look at it and I'll be back. I could not do it. And when I tell you he laughed at me, I tell you he laughed at me. He like patted me on the shoulder and he went, huh, that's all right. Oh, 
brutal. It's oh, brutal. That sucks. I'm yeah, sorry. That's all right. I like Boston a lot. I don't hold it against <laughs> the town, but this was, I think, probably hard for me at the outset with the move and why it was hard to kind of find my people is all of my people really stay put. Growing up, nobody moved from their hometown. That's still true with all of my family. And same thing with all of my friends. I had one other friend who left the state. He went to Wisconsin. He went to Marquette for college. Everybody else either didn't leave Connecticut or didn't leave the Northeast region. I had one other friend that went to Boston. Everybody else Mm -hmm. stayed in Connecticut. And so I'm really glad that I pushed that boundary for myself because I think I now personally helped me lead a much richer life to kind of get out of that bubble and kind of see yeah see what else is out there yeah i wonder about that when you go back home mm-hmm. and you interact with the people that you grew up with who you knew from high school or relatives sure. or whoever it is do you notice a discernible difference in granted you're not incredibly far from new york right. city or boston right. it's not like you're in backwoods tennessee or whatever right. like that right but do you notice a discernible difference in maybe your worldview versus theirs a, a little bit maybe not in the grander scheme of things because i think my one saving grace is that everybody in connecticut almost to a fault has the same belief systems that I do, the same outlook on the world. It's a very blue state. So there's not a whole lot we necessarily disagree on, but there is something more internal about it. And we talk about this a lot because my wife and I are not going to be in DC forever. So we're always thinking about where our next location is going to be. And we kick around the idea of maybe going back to Connecticut because we do miss the New York area and being close to it, even though I think our days in living in New York may be over. But every time I go back, it's always really comfortable. It's nice to click back in. And we have the same old conversations and I'm eating the same pizzas at the same bar with my friends and it's beautiful, but there's something in me that just goes, all right, that's almost time to go. Time to get back out there. And that's something that I don't necessarily think a lot of people at home have because a lot of my other friends have gone out and lived wildly different other places and and then came back to Connecticut. They were like, I didn't want to be anywhere else but Milford, Connecticut. And that's a wonderful, beautiful thing. I love my hometown. But I think having that early life trek of, I'm not going to just go to New York. I'm not just going to go to Massachusetts for college. I'm going to go halfway across the country to the wildest town in the union. It just kind of instilled in me this like, thought of what else is out there? Why am I staying put here? I love it here. It's great. I'll come back and recharge. But it's like, don't you want to go out there and branch out too? I'll never forget. There was one time I was at home in Connecticut and I, I was talking out loud about how homesick I was for New Orleans. I really had gotten to that place after a few years. And one of my sisters looked over to me with all of the honesty in her heart said, but you're in Milford. What else do you need? It's all here. And that to me was just like, I'm very glad that she is very confident in that because that's its own wonderful thing. But I, that's where I knew how different I think I had become. Mm-hmm. Yeah. It sounds like you have a little bit of wanderlust. Oh yeah. But, big time. Yeah. I have this thing in my head about people who don't leave their hometowns and just stay there for their entire, yeah. their entire lives. And I feel like you, granted, I live in the place I was born now, right? but A, New York is a big fucking city. That's a big fucking city. Yeah. And there are several lifestyles within the New York City umbrella that you can be exposed to. I I think 
it's really important for people to expand their worldview by living in other places, living with other types of people, having different experiences. I don't know if it necessarily makes you a better person, but it makes you a more well-rounded person. I tend to agree. Absolutely. It's a big world. I think it is important just to kind of understand your own community better and to understand your own neighbors better is to go out and see more of them, to understand that how different everything can be or is or how different people are. Right. But there is this part of me, and maybe this is where I differ, where I just go, are you not interested in that? How could you not be interested in that? Most of my friends did kind of go elsewhere for a spell and then come back. But I do have a few that just kind of like my parents grew up in one town, moved as far as the next town over. And that was that. And I just wonder, but are they more curious? Don't you think even your life at home would be richer for seeing what else is out there and then bringing that home? Alternate perspectives. Yeah, big time. You have to tell me, what is the craziest thing that you saw in New Orleans? Oh, man. That you can go on the record with? Oh, man, I don't know. I I had a lot of good stories from music festivals that I worked at there. A story I like to tell is that it was early on. I worked at two festivals in town every year. It was a voodoo music festival or experience and a New Orleans Jazz Fest. Hey. And one year before we all kind of knew who she was and she was just a, like a local artist, Big Frida came in to our kind of merch tent and we sold CDs. Now, it was only restricted to people who were playing at the festival and who were jazz fest artists, Big Frida was not on the bill because at the time Bounce was still leaving the city limits for the first time and nobody outside of New Orleans knew her, but she came into the tent and demanded that we sell her hand printed CDRs and she handed my boss a stack and she goes, you're going to sell them. And I come back and, and my boss is like, uh, I, I don't know who Big Frida is, but she's really tall and she just told me to put these on the rack. So we're going to have to figure out how much to sell these. <laughs> it's, man, I'm trying to think of something outside of a festival. Here's the other thing that I kind of regret about my time in New Orleans. Is I didn't go out and really get to know the town outside of my little bubble that I created mm-hmm. myself until later on. So now I could tell you how drunk I got at Pat O'Brien's on my wedding weekend. <laughs> but <laughs> my college days were really spent living the most charmed New Orleans life because my school was uptown in the Garden District. And I would take the streetcar down to go see Maroon 5 at the House of Blues and then come back home and tuck into bed. Oh, (laughs) Yeah. I'll never forgive myself. My freshman year, we used to get a week off from Mardi Gras. Okay. And I came home. What? I know. I know now. I really want to kick 19-year-old Sean's ass for that one. You want to kick 19-year-old Sean's ass for that? Yeah. Now it's my favorite time of year. I've got Mardi Gras lights on the outside of our apartment. But I really didn't kind of get out there and really see the town until maybe my senior year when it started all hitting me that I might not live here in a year. Sure. Mardi Gras is still on my list. Jazz Fest is still on my list. You would keel over for Jazz Fest. I would love to see you on the fairgrounds in April and May. It's the best time. And same thing with Mardi Gras. There's nothing else like it. It can't be replicated anywhere else. I've seen all the debauchery you could imagine. All the shirts lifted and puke in the streets and whatnot. But outside of that, garden variety kind of partying. (laughs) Garden variety debauchery. Yeah. Normal everyday stuff. 
Normal everyday stuff. That's right. Right on. So you mentioned earlier that you have lost, unfortunately, a parent. Yeah. And it sounds like that was a pretty defining moment. Yeah. And I know that you've posted about it on social media and you and I have never talked about it, but yeah. I do get the feeling that that was a very important moment in your life. Oh, yeah. And I again, you are still young. You were a you. very young person when, when that. that happened. Yeah. Yeah. I was 23. And so this past November was 10 years. And I would say it is still the defining thing of my life. It changes shape. It looks different from year to year. The way I deal with it every day has certainly shifted, but it still is not gone away. It's never not pretty near to the top of my mind. Right. Yeah, it shaped adult me for sure. And I'm going to take a leap of faith here and assume that you and your mom were very close. Yeah, we were. She was the best. In the moment, like 23-year-old mm -hmm. Sean, how did that hit you? It was a really slow burn, I'll say, because she was sick for a long time. She had had breast cancer. And it had started earlier on when I was in college, and she beat it once and went into remission. And then shortly after I graduated, it had returned. And even from there, I think she lived with it for close to two years before she ultimately passed. And as you probably always hear with stories like this, there were lots of ups and downs. So for a long time, it kind of just didn't enter my brain that we might lose her. There was something always inside of me that was just like, well, it's mom. She's going to figure it out. She's a nurse herself. She's at her beloved hospital. Everybody's giving her probably the best care they absolutely can because they worked with her and you kind of figure this out. And then even when she passed or when we knew that she was going to pass, she then hung with us for a few more weeks. And so there was a kind of gradual ramping up there too, because I didn't quite understand, well, we're going to lose her and you're telling me we're going to lose her, but it's also been a month. So what do I do with this information. So when it eventually happened, I really kind of zigzagged in a way where there were just certain periods of time, certain days where it hit me and other days where it's like it didn't happen. The day she ultimately had passed, it, it I hate to say, I, I don't want to say it felt like nothing, but it just kind of felt like, okay, all right, okay. We left the hospital and I think all four of us, my dad, my sisters, we all kind of were like, okay, well, it's weird leaving without her, but okay, it's happened. It wasn't really until her funeral then where it just all kind of all clicked and I collapsed. But because of this strange back and forth I had, it really took me a few years, I think, to start dealing with it because I would rush headlong into just hanging out with friends and keeping myself busy and the day of her funeral, as soon as we got home, I went over to my friend's house because I was like, I, I can't take it. I got to go drink a few Miller Lights and watch Adult Swim with my friends. And that was wonderful. And it was, had a wonderful support system. But it took me a while to realize how much it had sunk into my being just because of her own trajectory as she got sick was so back and forth. It felt scattered at times. That's where it sort of left me is for a long time, not really knowing how to feel about it. These very low lows and these very high highs of just trying to figure out where I fit in with my emotions. That was a process. Right. I mean, I knew this before I started the podcast and I've had it 
repeated to me many, many times over the last three years is that people have a hard time with grief. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, not necessarily specifically as men, but I do think that in general, we are not really allowed to sit with emotions yes. as a general rule. Absolutely. Um, but grief is a very, very particular thing. And I feel like the general narrative is always like, buck up. Oh, yeah. Get over it, school of thought. Yeah. Yeah. And there are people who have lost people close to them 10, 20, 30 years ago mm. that are still working out their feelings about the leading up to it and what happened in the aftermath. And did you seek any sort of help from anywhere to help you deal with your emotions? Oh, I eventually started going to therapy, but it wasn't until about five or six years after the fact. And it honestly wasn't even about the grief because I was still in a place where I thought, I'm doing fine. I'm doing great. I think I definitely internalized that sort of buck up champ. Not for anybody's lack of trying. I had amazing emotional support system. My group of friends really rallied around me. My family and I got really close and tight and even branches of my family that had become estranged and have since become estranged after the fact really came together to hold us up in those few years. But I had thought to myself, we're good. She's with us. You're okay. Carry on. It wasn't really until a few years later when I just started getting more aware of the fact that I had anxiety and have anxiety. And I thought, ah, maybe I should go speak to somebody about my anxiety. And I found a therapist and pretty quick on, like maybe our second meeting, and I let it all out. It was a release of, oh, this is wrecking me from the inside. This is still burning deep at my core. I didn't put it out. I just kind of covered it up a little bit. So I kind of stumbled into a process through it, but it took a long time and I didn't even let myself be aware of it at first. Where would you say you're at 10 years later? I mean, the anniversary had to have been a gut punch, but to end your yeah. wedding. Yeah. It was the wedding that did it for me. I'll say. It's strange. The anniversary every day has become this weird sort of holiday for me in that I don't sit and sob like I used to. There was a time where this day would come and I would just dread it for a week before. And even still now, the days leading up to it, I'll feel a little weird. I'll feel a little down and not really know why. Now it's become this day. I'm just going to do whatever I want. I'm going to let myself feel how I feel. I'm going to take myself out if I want to. I'm going to buy that Wilco box set if I want to. Because that was always my mom's thing too. She was very retail therapy happy. Okay, thanks, mom. <laughs> thanks for the okay. But what I found is that, so maybe the day itself and the anniversary itself doesn't look the way it did in the initial few years. But my current struggle now, and it is still a struggle 10 years on, is how... Grief stays with you, or it stayed with me, but it's gotten really good at hiding. It's gotten really good at putting on costumes or trying to trick me. And I say the wedding is because I knew leading up to the wedding, it was going to be hard because it's been the first big life event that she's not here for. And down the line, there'll be more, like whenever we have kids. This was kind of the first time that I had that. And I thought I was doing good. We put these picture frames together all these wonderful pictures of her to put on a special table. And we found ways to remember her throughout the weekend. But what I think about a lot is the, the first night we had in town with everybody. Because we got married at the French Quarter 
and so many of our family and friends had never been to New Orleans before, we thought, why don't we have some welcome drinks at Pat O'Brien's, get some hurricanes. And we had the best time. And throughout the night, lots of people bought me hurricanes. And for a long time, it was just like, ah, oh, yeah, I'm the groom, buy me a hurricane. But I got so trashed. <laughs> the drunkest I've ever Second drunkest, that's a separate story. Second drunkest I've ever been in my adult life. Drunkest Ashton, my wife, has ever seen me. And throughout the night, I was just like, this is our party. You're in my town. I finally got my friends here. And I really wasn't thinking about it until we got home to the Airbnb. Everybody went home. Everybody was in their respective Ubers or Airbnbs. And it was just like a quiet moment. As soon as we got out of the Uber, pulls away. And my brain went to my mom. And I was like, oh, that's why I drank like this all night. This is what has been inside. It was one thing in all the preparing. We were busy. We had tasks. We had things to do. But now it's here. Here's the first celebratory moment that we have all weekend. And my mom is not here. And that sucks. And I completely broke down. In a way I probably hadn't since the year or two after she passed. I hadn't let myself go since then. And I was also so upset with my grief because I didn't see it coming. I just thought I was doing good. I was the life of the party. What happened? And in the time since, I'm like, I'm not the biggest drinker in the world. I would have had a limit. I would have been like, okay, that's enough, guys. But no, I needed to keep going because I knew if somewhere in my brain, I knew if I stopped, that was coming next. I was mm. trying to postpone it or I was trying to get around it. And as soon as I couldn't, it hit me like a ton of bricks. I, I would say it's almost a gift to be able to recognize that. Yeah. Because I think a lot of people take emotions like that and never realize that this is why they're doing this thing. They just yeah. do the thing. So I think it speaks to your, what's the term I'm looking for? To your knowledge of self, to yeah. your self-awareness. Yeah. yeah. That you were able to come up with that. Yeah. So the anxiety is kind of a separate thing, I guess. Yeah. How did that manifest itself? Well, I think a lot about going back to my time at college. Here I am in this extremely lively town. I'm going to see the best music I've ever seen in my life, night after night. And I'm doing it by myself. And I didn't know why. Because, again, not for lack of anybody's trying, I, I had a wonderful school full of people around me that were probably more than willing to meet me out and go to the show at Tipitina's or go get po' boys after a Hornets game. And what beautiful, wonderful community in the town, in the school. And I just did not take advantage of it. And in the time since, or in the years immediately afterwards, it sat with me a lot, still sits with me a lot. And then I had a really tough time post-college finding a job. I just worked in my local parks and rec department for three years after graduating. And, and I hit this moment, and I don't know that there was like a light switch kind of moment, but I just started to think, boy, I'm stressed all the time and things aren't going the way that I thought they would. I didn't have the big community college experience as much as I loved where I went and I loved my time in college. I'm really struggling with not going where I need to in my career and things just aren't fitting together. And I just feel sort of tight all the time. That's the way I think I could really express my early to mid twenties is I felt clenched a lot of the time. 
and very tightly wound and never completely comfortable. And I really couldn't put a finger on why for a long time. But funnily enough, I think it was reading Jezebel at the time, one of those Gawker sites, and it was an op-ed type piece about how awesome ang therapy is. And I'll never forget, there was like some line in the piece where she just said, nobody doesn't have shit that they could use working out with somebody else. And I'd never considered therapy beforehand. It just, the thought never entered my brain. But when I read that, maybe that was the light switch moment where I just went, yeah, I'll go for one session. I'll see if I could be like, oh, I'm anxious. And he goes, okay, here's the answer. And eight years later, I'm still <laughs> talking to the same guy. But yeah, it was like, oh, it doesn't have to be this way. I don't have all the answers as to why I get anxious the way I do at times still. But I can recognize it better now. I have ways of working myself out of it. But the biggest light switch thing to me was just, it doesn't have to be this way. There is somebody I can talk to about. There are people that can recognize what I'm going through. It doesn't have to be me sitting on the Metro North, coming home from work, being like, why am I bummed right now? Why am I stressed? Why am I tight? So there was no hesitation. You read the article, were like, I'm going to call somebody... That was that? Literally, yeah. Later that hour, later that lunch hour. Wow. I was on Psychology Today looking for therapists in Connecticut. Because I'll try most anything once. <laughs> I'm not necessarily afraid of trying new things or new experiences. Like, again, just up and moving to New Orleans when I had never been further away from home than Virginia. Right. I was just like, hey, it could be a cool thing. <laughs> Let me try it. And this was the same thing. I just thought, I don't want to go on any sort of medication or anything like that, but let me just try to tell somebody how I'm feeling, which is not something I tried to avoid in the past. Maybe it's my Irish Catholic raising. I don't know. The thought never crossed my mind. And as soon as it did, I went, okay, yeah, I'll give it a go. That's amazing. And what is it doing for you all of these years later? I mean, I am a huge proponent of therapy. Yeah. Some people might need it for a short time. Some people might yeah. need it for a longer time. Some people might need to go in and out. Some people might need it for the rest of their lives. What is it that keeps you going? So I definitely don't go as much as I used to, because there was a time where I went every other week. Now that I'm away from Connecticut, I actually have to find a new therapist because he's not licensed for, thanks COVID. Can't do Zoom calls anymore in, in 2023. But I think it's just, I have found it very helpful, almost like bounce ideas off of him to bounce my thoughts off of him because at this point now he knows me so well, or at the very least, if I have to switch therapists, I'm comfortable enough with the idea of therapy that a, I'm upfront about how I feel. I think I have now become a person where my emotions are kind of always at the surface where I never cried before. I'll cry at the drop of a hat. Now you name the movie trailer. I'll cry at it. I've been, been more comfortable with letting myself feel however I need to feel. And then in the best of times with my current therapist, he's very good when he needs to be with tough love, which I think I respond to well, just to be like, you see what you're doing, right? You see how you're twisting yourself up, how you're winding yourself up, where this comes from, right? And it's always like, oh, it is my grief about my mom or, oh yeah, that's right. I have anxiety. Again, I don't need it every other week, but somebody to hear the way my brain is currently going and just kind of like tweak it, like getting your car fixed. You saw the check engine light was on. Let me look under the hood. Oh, there's that thing. Oh, there's that thing that needs to be tightened a little bit and off you go. That's the way I, I see it now. It's just like a tune-up. And, and some people don't need a tune-up. Some people need a tune-up more often than others. 
but I need a tune-up application. Right on. And what are some, some things that you've adopted to kind of manage your anxiety? Sure. Meditation and yoga. I, I'm a proud subscriber of the Headspace app. I do that every day. And then yoga, while it's kind of come and gone, I'm actually super getting back into it. But that was a big thing that helped immediately after my mom passing with my mental health and anxiety. I'm a fan of meditation. I go mm -hmm. back and forth on actually practicing it. My mind doesn't settle very well. So yeah. oftentimes when I meditate, I'm kind of fighting with myself to not go 10 different places at the same time. Yeah. I've never really tried yoga. I don't know that I'm flexible enough for yoga. Oh, neither am I. You don't have to be flexible to try it, Mike. I'll tell you, you should try it. Fair. I, it was like a week or two ago. There was some pose I do that like yoga with Adrienne videos. That I've heard of that. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Oh, she's the best. They're, the best review I could give it, I saw on Twitter one time, someone was like, yoga with Adrienne is the closest we'll ever come to socialized medicine. Because <laughs> it is a wonderful channel. Her videos are great. They're so helpful. It's a really good workout, but it's also very much mental health and kind of centering yourself based. That part of it is also very important to me. It's not just the exercise, but when my mom passed, I needed an hour or two every week where I could focus on nothing else. Like I was forced to clear my head out, but I'm not flexible. And my wife will tell you, it's like two weeks ago, I was doing some pose and it was like a happy baby pose where you're on your back and you've got your legs lifted up to the sky and you're rolling like a happy baby. And I realized like my legs were not straight at all. Like hers were. And I was like, Ashton, come here. Am I not flexible? She's like, that's the most you can straighten your legs. That's the most you can straighten your arm. I'm like, yeah, I can't do it. She's like, oh yeah, you are not <laughs> flexible. Not Did all. she not try to like karate chop your legs into straightness? No, no. She just kind of like came in and looked and was like, oh yeah, that's not. <laughs> yeah, straightening your legs. I was like, this is all they'll do. Oh, God. Okay. Duly noted. Highly recommend. <laughs> I'll have to check that out. Yeah, that's right. So, it. beyond the heavy shit, you are a huge music fan in addition to being a musician. You have some pretty hardcore dad rock credentials, even though you're a young dad rock guy. Yeah. But you've also you've got the beard. Yeah. You've got the uh, the headphones with the finish on the sides. That's that right. That makes it oh, look yeah. like they're... That's not actual wood. Oh, it is. It is? It is. It's a wonderful company, if you're interested, called Listen. I first got into it because you buy a pair of headphones and it goes to charity. It's the Starkey Foundation. So I'm a sucker for, oh, I can buy this thing and half of it goes to charity. I'll get it. But they're great. And also, yes, it matches my aesthetic. <laughs> wow. <laughs> yes. You're drinking a coffee. Yeah. Uh, you grill. You've got the whole dad grill. rock aesthetic. I, I grill while listening to the Allman Brothers. <laughs> I'll do you a step further. Even now, I'm looking at my spring concert calendar. And it's like, I'm going to try to go to Jazz Fest. But it's like, I got tickets to see the Walkman. I got tickets to see the new pornographers. It's like, oh, yeah, everybody on stage and in the crowd is going to be looking like and you. I just gravitated towards it. It's going to be a bunch of middle to almost middle-aged white guys with beards and glasses. Yeah. Yep. And that's what <laughs> happened when I saw Spoon a couple months ago. Yeah, I've seen Spoon several times. I've been the chocolate in the uh, glass of milk. <laughs> yeah, that's a band I love, but that is not the most diverse crowd in the world, I'll tell you. I mean, look, there are a million yeah. bands like that. I mean, oh, yeah. Go to a Wilco show. or I mean, I'm trying to think of who the whitest rock bands are. <laughs> but you go to a lot of those shows, particularly the whole like Fleet Foxes, Band of Horses, oh, yeah. like that whole sort of folky, the Newport Folk Fest type band. There you go. Yeah, right. absolutely. Yeah. And 
you're not going to see very many brown faces. No, not the politics are great. Oh yeah, of the bands oh, yeah. of the, and the artists. Sure, just the style of music hasn't really like crossed. Yeah, yeah, sure. I don't yeah. know that that's any fault of anybody other than the fact that I, I think that a lot of us are socialized to only appreciate certain types of music or to oh, think yeah. certain types of music are meant for us to appreciate. Yeah. Um, unfortunately, people sometimes can fall into those traps, but I, I really try to push out of that myself. I'm really grateful that I don't think necessarily in those lines, or at least I try to expand on it because as much as I do love my dad rock and I love my dad rock, you mentioned Wilco <laughs> literally when we're done here, I'm going to be going to frame bridge later on to pick up a Wilco poster that I had framed dude to go up against, hold on the two Wilco posters I have up in Sean. behind me. I know who I am. This podcast has been sponsored by Jeff Tweedy. Oh my God. You want to talk? Okay. The most I've, Almost freaked out at meeting somebody was Jeff Tweedy. We really want to talk about my dad rock lifestyle. <laughs> I'm generally pretty cool about meeting cool people, but I was surprised by Jeff Tweedy. Tell me the story. It was at Rough Trade in Brooklyn at the original location. They had a listening party for one of their records. And it was a really great idea. All these record stores around the country at the same time, they were going to drop the needle on the record. You sit in the store and you listen to it. And you could buy it early. And so that's great. I sit and listen to the record. It's awesome. I then go and I pick up my record and then they slip me a wristband and they go, Wilco's going to be here playing in the back room next week. Here's your wristband. Come on back. So now I'm flipping out because they're probably my favorite band or maybe my second favorite band, one of the two. And they're in that venue at Rough Trade, which was what, maybe 300 people max? Yeah, that, maybe the less. place was tiny. Yeah. And they played like a 90 minute set and I'm at most 10 feet away from the stage. And I'm absolutely in heaven. It's one of the coolest live music moments I've ever had in my life. And then afterwards, they leave the stage and everybody's preparing to go. And they announce on the stage, okay, well, everybody get their records because they're going to be out at the table signing the records. Everybody get in line. And I go, oh my God, I can't. I can't. Sean McNamara had an anxiety attack. I did. Well, because first off, they're like, well, they're only going to be signing the new album, of course, which I didn't have on me. But I'm like, I'm not going to miss meeting Wilco. So I bought another copy of the record and I got in line. And the way they had it even set up was like they had the whole there's six members in the band and they were almost like in order of how long they've been in the band. So like the newest <laughs> guys were first. And everybody to a fault was the nicest. I met Nels Klein and we actually like really talked. I was like, oh, I saw you at this jazz club playing with Julian Lodge. He's like, oh my God, The Stone, that's the best show. And I'm like feeling it. I'm, I'm gabbing. I'm, it's great. <laughs> but as we start to get down the line and I meet Glenn, the drummer, and I meet John, the bassist, they have Jeff at the end. And I'm just like, oh my God. Oh my God. Okay. It's cool. It's cool. I could feel the anxiety rising up until finally I came over to him and he was so lovely and he was so patient and I could feel it welling up in me being like, hi, Miss, Mr. Tweedy, I'm such a big fan and your, your, oh, your music means so much. And he's like, oh, thank you so much. And, and somebody came right over and they had scissors at the ready to cut off my wristband. They're like, all right, cool. Thanks. Bye. I was like, thank you, Rough Trade employee, because I was going to be struggling for breath in about right. 30 more seconds. You had no other moves. I had no other moves. I had no other moves. <laughs> I don't know why. 
but that dad rock muscle really flexed. But that's awesome. Like to bring it full circle to the beginning of the conversation. And that's what great music. I mean, it does for you does for me. I feel bad for the people that it does not do that to. Yeah. No shade. If that's not your thing, but the best music and the best musicians give you this visceral, like not to overstate the case, they give your thoughts meaning and give you all new perspectives and it's super meaningful in the grand scheme of things. Oh yeah. I mean, I think about the times where my life changed and it's always been whatever way, shape or form, but usually for the better. Music either really soundtracked it or was the impetus of it for me. I think of two very specific real-life moments where music changed my life. And they're both in New Orleans. One was at Jazz Fest. I would get there super early in the morning to help set up. And it was the last day of my last Jazz Fest. I'm not sure when I'm going to be back in New Orleans next because I'm graduating in a week. And the Neville Brothers were sound-checking. And to walk an empty New Orleans fairgrounds as I'm about to leave New Orleans, listening to Aaron Neville sound check. Oh, man. A change is going to come. That'll be with me until the day I die. I, yeah. And then, and then going back to my anxiety about New Orleans, because I, in so many ways, it could have been better. I was lonely. I was anxious. I didn't know people, but I've never lost my love for the city of New Orleans. And I think it's because of this reason. My freshman year, I was at my worst. I was calling home every day. Didn't really leave my room or the campus very often. Wasn't comfortable really going out. And I go to dinner one night in the common area. And there's some very, very stuffy alumni party in the lobby. Somebody's just there kind of tinkling on the piano. Sounds lovely. Not really paying much mind to it go to dinner and I come out the piano still playing, but now somebody's cleared out. The party's just kind of like dipped away a little bit and they're going back over to the bar. And so the piano is open and it's Alan Dusan. Wow. He's been there basically just been doing the cocktail music. Nobody's paying even any mind to him. He was the first artist that I really knew of from New Orleans R&B because once I applied there and I got in and that was the school I was going to, my dad bought me a copy of The River in Reverse, which is the record that Elvis Costello made with Alan Tucson. Right, right. So I got familiar with him and I knew who he was. And I'm like, well, I should sit and listen to Alan Toussaint. And I just sat there in the lobby listening to him play for a little bit. And then he got up and, and started walking out because he was done. And everybody gave him a little polite applause. And then I think he shot over to the like very chubby, neck-bearded kid that was sitting there watching him for half an hour. Didn't say anything, but he gave me a nod of like, hey... How you doing? I'll see you. And then he left. And that, to this day, I think that was like New Orleans itself being like, we are sending you our best person. Here's our ambassador. <laughs> Welcome, Welcome, sir. Welcome. And now I have nothing but the warmest feelings for that place because it felt like it reached out to me in a weird way when that I really amazing. needed it to. And that's that because amazing. of the music. Yeah. Holy shit. That is yeah. a great story. I think about that a lot. It makes that's me very awesome. happy. Thank you, Sean, for being vulnerable and sharing your story. I really appreciate you taking the time out of your schedule to uh, talk to us. Congratulations on your nuptials. Uh, Sean is a newly married man, so uh, big shout out to you. You are also, he is also, why am I talking to him? I'm talking to y'all. 
He's also a dog dad, a brand new dog dad, so uh, good luck with that. I know he was having some issues when we recorded at the outset. Uh, if you want to know more about Sean McNamara, you can follow him on Instagram. He is Sean Mac Music. That is Sean MC Music. He is also on Twitter at uh, Listen to Sean Mac. That is Listen to the Word to T O Sean MC. And Sean is spelled S E A N and not S H U N or S H A W N or S. E-I-N, or any of the million and one different ways that you can spell Sean. Nameology lesson in addition to hearing a podcast today. (laughs) Thank you for listening. Thank you for listening to Detoxicity. I hope you found this particular episode interesting. And if you are new, I hope you go back and listen to all of the older episodes. Uh, Once again, my name is Mike Joseph. I am the host and producer of this show. And uh, there are a lot of things that you can do to continue to support our mission, continue to support this podcast. Uh, Follow me on social media. I am on Instagram, Twitter, and I'm on TikTok as DetoxPodGuy. Uh, You can also send me an email if you'd like. I'm at detoxpod at gmail.com. I am always on the hunt for people with interesting, inspirational, and powerful stories. So if you know somebody who fits that bill or if you yourself fit that bill, please don't hesitate to drop me a line via email or via social media. Uh, Please make sure you subscribe on your podcast platform that you're listening to this on. Uh, Rate, comment, help a brother out, uh, help us move up in the rankings, uh, follow me on social media. Like I said, uh, follow our Patreon or subscribe to my Patreon, actually, patreon.com slash detoxicitypod. You get access to exclusive episodes. You get episodes a little earlier than the general public. You get a cool ass sticker, lots of stuff. Once again, patreon.com slash detoxicitypod. Quick shout out to Calvin Williams for providing the music and, uh, doing his magic on the logo which was originally designed by jacob block i thank you all for listening i wish you all the best please take care of each other till next time peace